Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. Romans 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. This is a familiar passage. Romans 8, 1 through 8, and there you will find these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that you have not hidden it from us. You have not... Uh, made it to where we need to go into a mountain or into a cave deep to search it out, but we do have to spend time with it, and we have to spend time with you in it. And so, God, we come now to the part of service where we expressly need to hear from you. God, I know this is facilitated, mediated through me, but God, I don't want any of me showing through. God, your word is far too important. Your truth is far too weighty and meaningful for it to get tripped up and caught up in what I want and what I want to say and how I want to look and all those kinds of things. So God, remove me from the equation until the only thing that remains is you, your word, and the power of your Holy Spirit. God, attune our ears to you. Break up the fallow ground in our heart so that where this word needs to take root, it can. Where this word needs to produce fruit, it can. And so that your word will be found true, that it will not return to you void but it will accomplish all that you sent it forth to accomplish. All these things we ask in your son Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, And for just a title for uh, the uh, time we're going to spend together here, it really is a question, what is your mind set on? (laughs) What is your mind set on? Uh, And the lesson aim for today is really just three different points here. One is that Uh, We would ask God to show us where in our lives our minds are set on the flesh. 
And then once he's done that, secondly, we would then repent and ask God for forgiveness. And then finally, we would ask the Holy Spirit to set our minds on him. Just by way of introduction and to just frame a little bit uh, with a, a light story, uh, I'm sure we're no different than any other family, but we've got some go-to meals in our house, some things that, you know, when we think about, well, what are we going to eat today? He'd be like, hey, let's do this. And one of those meals is nachos. Yeah, I like nachos. Karen makes good nachos. The family, we like nachos. And uh, it's one of our go-tos. It's easy to make. You can make a lot of it, and it goes over well. We're always happy when, when nachos is on the docket. So much so that once Karen gave uh, the girls a chance to pick what they wanted for, was it Christmas dinner? Christmas dinner. Nachos. So just like they did in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, we celebrated Jesus' birth with the traditional Christian meal of nachos. But a couple of weeks ago, right, because this is one of our normal staple meals, we had nachos, and we had, typically we have leftovers, leftovers. So we put all of the stuff in the refrigerator, and then you're able to kind of make individual servings of nachos for a couple of days after that. My oldest daughter, Jayla, she loves the nachos, and even while we were eating the nachos, she was declaring she's going to eat them again tomorrow. So her mind was set on eating nachos. So she gets up uh, the next day, and at lunchtime, right, she begins that process. She gets her chips out. She puts the, uh, we do uh, ground turkey. She puts the ground turkey on it, the shredded lettuce, all the good stuff, and then she grabs nacho cheese, or at least what she thinks is nacho cheese. She takes that. She opens it up. It looks like nacho cheese. She heats it up. The consistency is a little bit different than nacho cheese, but nonetheless, she's eating nachos. She had said on her mind she was going to eat nachos, and she's making them, and so she pours it on the nachos, and she proceeds to eat the nachos. Later that day, I asked her about it, and she said, yeah, you know, Dad, the, the nacho cheese tastes funny. And I said, well, where did, you know, we just had it yesterday. It can't be bad. And she was like, well, that container right there, that's nacho cheese, right? And, I, and I, <laughs> I grabbed the container, and I said, this container? And she's like, yeah, that's, that's the cheese, right? And I was like, no, this is sweetened condensed milk. <laughs> See, I'm a coffee drinker, and, and when we don't have creamer sometimes, I'll crack open a can of sweetened condensed milk, add it to the coffee, and then put the rest in a container in the refrigerator. And I said, so you, this is what you put on your nachos? And she was like, yeah. And I said, well, <laughs> I said, I don't even understand how, and she was like, well, it was in the container that we usually put the cheese in. It looked like nacho cheese to me. She said, yeah, I said, but, but it, I mean, the smell, did you? She was like, well, when it heated up, it smelled a little funny, and it tastes, you know, kind of sweet, but I just, she said, I just figured, you know, kind of, it, it's nachos, Right? And I couldn't get over the fact, one, that she had taken the sweetened condensed milk and had used it. But I think the thing that really kind of bore into my mind is that um, not just that she got the sweetened condensed milk, but that despite a lot of the evidence along the way, she never once went back and questioned she said, yeah, it, 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 
didn't quite look, because the nacho cheese we use has like salsa in it, bits of, you know, tomatoes and stuff. This is just smooth. She said, yeah, it didn't quite look like the nacho cheese. When I heated it up, it didn't quite pour <laughs> like the nacho cheese. And then when I put the chips in my mouth, it didn't quite taste like the nacho cheese. But I wanted nachos. And so, of course, I was struck by that. And, and I think what that illustration shows, right, is that a couple of things. One is that what we set our minds on is powerful. It's powerful. It can make us ignore all the evidence, right? Here's the other thing that mindsets do. This is the other thing that kind of came to me as I was thinking about it, is that she was set on nachos. She wanted nachos. Like I said, she had declared the day before that she was getting nachos, and she prepared her nachos. But the moment she put sweetened condensed, condensed milk on her plate, they ceased to be nachos. Hmm. So that lets me know, one, that mindsets are powerful, but also, mindsets have a way of distorting reality. And you often don't get what you think you're going to get, depending on what your mindset is on. <clears throat> and albeit, right, um, on a much larger scale in the text, I believe that this is a little bit of what Paul is warning these Christians in Rome about. Is about the danger of the mindset, the power of the mindset, and how, if you aren't careful, um, you can get a false sense of what's good and desirable and beneficial for you, all because of what your mind is set on. But before we get there, let's just rehearse the text a little bit and make sure that we have some good context, some good background, and then we'll walk through these verses. Now, it is believed that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome around 57, 58 A.D., while he was in Corinth. And his intention being, he states this in the letter, was to go to Jerusalem, then to visit Rome on his way ultimately to Spain as he was doing his mission work. Now, the congregation in Rome was likely a mix of Jews and Gentiles, which is why when you read through the book of Romans, uh, Romans uh, you will uh, see some portions that seem like they're written specifically to Gentiles. And then other portions that seem like they're written specifically to Jews. Well, that's because Paul is writing to a multi-ethnic congregation. And he writes to them for a couple of reasons. First, he just wants to introduce himself to the church. This is a church that he did not establish and hadn't had the opportunity to visit just yet. So he's introducing himself to the church. He's been hearing about them, and he's been eager to connect with them in person. But for right now, he's going to have to write them a letter. He also writes to clear up some misconceptions about the gospel message that he's been preaching. There are some that have been going around and saying, look, Paul, you talk so much about being saved by grace and by faith that uh, people are starting to think that what you're actually advocating is live however you want to. It doesn't matter because God is so much love that he'll just look over whatever it is that you got going on in your life. And so Paul wants to come back and kind of push back against that and say, yeah, don't get it twisted. What I'm telling you is, is that you aren't saved by good works, but you have been saved to good works, to do good, and to live righteously. 
Then thirdly, he also writes to them to address an issue that has arisen in a church between two groups. In the scripture, he actually calls one the weak and one the strong, one the mature, one the weaker group. But there is a group that feels like certain elements of the Mosaic law still need to be observed to just solidify your salvation. Some of the food practices and some of the ceremonial laws and some of the high holy days still need to be observed in order for your salvation in Christ to kind of take, to stick, to hold. And he wants to address that because, one, it's not quite accurate, right? It's not good doctrine. But, two, it's also causing divisions in the church. And so Paul's letter to the Romans typically and in, in whole, is one of the most beloved, most cherished books of the Bible for many believers, namely because in it, right, we find the fullest, most comprehensive explanation and presentation of the gospel message. It has been said that if you could not have a Bible, but it could only have a book of the Bible, Romans would be the book you should take with you as it walks from the very beginning all the way through Christ on the cross. And at a high level, right, Paul begins his letter talking about the righteousness of God. He then transitions into describing how within mankind there is both a lack of and a need of God's righteousness. He then spends time thinking and talking about the gift that God's righteousness is and what we who have been united with Christ have as a result of that gift. He also laments about Israel's initial rejection of Jesus as the Savior. But he points out that this rejection isn't final, that there may yet be still time for the house of Israel to come into belief in Jesus Christ. And he ends his letter dealing and detailing how we should live our lives specifically within the community of believers as a result of God's righteousness. Now, chapter 8, right smack dab in the middle of Romans, is where our text is found. And it opens up with a very familiar portion of Scripture. It opens up with a summation of the gospel, and this summation is kicked off by a verse that we all are very familiar with, where Paul says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the beginning of chapter 8 Specifically, this verse cannot be divorced from the end of chapter 7. We've talked about this before, especially in our Sunday school class, that, yeah, we put in verses and we put in chapter divisions, but these are letters that have a continuous flow of thought. It's not like at the end of chapter 7, Paul put his pen down, went and did something else, and then came back and said, okay, let me start chapter 8 now. He's continuing his writing, so this has a flow of thought. And chapter 7 in Romans is a well-known chapter as well. Even if you don't know it by chapter number, you know it by content. Because it is where Paul gives voice to the struggle that all of us who have been redeemed in Christ live day in and day out. This tug of war between this righteousness that God has called us to and the sin that our flesh still desires to do. This struggle is so intense, it's so real that Paul says in chapter 7 that I'm watching myself do things that I told myself not to do, but then myself tells myself I'm going to do it anyway. That's the CSV, the Charles Standard Version. And Paul says, right, 
that this struggle that I see at work in me has led me to a conclusion. And that conclusion is this, that while being united in Christ has created a new life within me, it's created a new desire, a new longing, a new thirst, and a new hunger for God's righteousness, all of this newness is birthing and and bubbling up within me. This newness of life is still housed within a body that wants to be up in these streets, Pete. (laughs) A body that still desires the old life that still desires old desires, that still wants old patterns, a body that thirsts and hungers not for righteousness, but for those old appetites to be satisfied. Look, in our household, (laughs) this hit me so hard. It was like, I got to use this. This is a great example. We are trying to eat better. I just told you about nachos and sweetened condensed milk. You guys, the threshold is low there, Charles. But we're trying to eat better. And when I tell you eat better, I'm not talking about like on the curbs. I'm talking like Karen went in the pantry and was like, whoosh, and throwing stuff away. Some stuff I was like, hey, we might could eat the rest of that and just not buy it anymore, Pete. <laughs> you know, we waste not, want not. Let's, all things in moderation. But anyway, we're doing that and we're replacing it with stuff from Whole Foods and, and you know, no preservatives, no high fructose corn syrup, which is just makes everything taste good, right? And we're doing that. And, and one of the things that, that we did is also try to just prepare some things. So there's this Tupperware uh, container in the refrigerator and it's got sliced cucumbers, slightly salted, just something, you know, you snack on, Pete. Pete, you make an eye contact with me. I'm going to talk to you. I think you understand what I'm talking about. Just something you can snack on. But <laughs> I, my, my daughter, she works at a candy store. This sounds made up, doesn't it? This, this is real. <laughs> God, is, he, he knows what he's doing. Both of them work at a candy store, and so and Hannah still works there. And so periodically, she'll bring some stuff home. But look, it's not about her. So periodically, we stopped there just yesterday to go by and pick up some things. So in this same refrigerator where we're trying to eat better, and I've got these salted cucumbers that are a healthy option and snack, I also got this white bag. And in that white bag are chocolate-covered Oreos. (laughs) And when I get up, right, I'm working from home, when I get up from my desk and I think I want a snack and I want to eat something, and I go in there and in my mind I'm thinking, look, I know we're throwing away foods, we're trying to eat better, we're shopping at Whole Foods, we're doing all this good stuff. I got those cucumbers, I prepped them, I salted them so I can eat them, I open it up, I'm going to get those cucumbers, and I see that white bag. And like Paul, (laughs) I know what I should do. (laughs) But that that I should not do, I run quickly too, right? And that's, that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about, I, I know that there's, there's something better for me that I should be about. And look, truth be told, those cucumbers taste good. It's not that they taste bad. But I also got a taste for something else. Paul says that this is the life of a Christian, Right? And Paul then asks this question. Remember, we're at the end of chapter 7 to flow into chapter 8. He says, who can break this tug of war? (laughs) Even before that, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. (laughs) Who can end 
this battle. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? And I like what Paul does. If you're not looking at it, look at it, because I think it's worth it. If it's behind me, awesome. I don't know. But look, when you get there, what you see is he asks the question, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he answers it with a praise. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And because believers are moving through this process of sanctification, this building up of the new life and putting to death of the old life, the knowing you should be eating the cucumbers but still desiring these chocolate-covered Oreos, he says, look, look, even though we are struggling and we've got this tug of war, at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Hmm. And I think that's a good place for us to start off and to understand because it begins the passage that we want to talk about. It sets the context for what Paul is dealing with and his flow of thought. And it brings me to my first takeaway, and that is that for the believer, the process of sanctification is imperfect. It ebbs and it flows. And our state of salvation, our redemption in Christ is not evidenced, hear me now, by the absence of sinful desires. But it is evidenced by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us to resist those sinful desires, thereby creating different fruit in our lives. See, Unity in Christ does not generate perfection. Instead, our union with Christ gives us access to the power in the Spirit to do what Christ before us we couldn't do, to do what we couldn't do before Christ, we were powerless to do, which is to resist the sinful desires. Let me just add this as well, and just as a footnote, there's, a, I think, a common misconception about desires. Hear me out. Some of us think desires validate behavior. Let me say that again. Some of us think that desires validate behavior. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? What, what I mean is, is that some people think that if I feel it, then it's a natural thing, so it can't be wrong. If I feel it, then it's natural and it can't be wrong, right? This is why some people will argue that man was never meant to be in monogamous relationships. Well, what makes you say that? Well, because a man's desire is for multiple sexual partners, and so that's a natural impulse. So it's unnatural for him to just be hooked up with one person for the whole entirety of his life, right? So we let the desire validate the behavior. And we have to be careful that we don't let this come into the church, right? Because sometimes what we think is, is, well, goodness, I'm a Christian, and this desire is strong in me, so maybe that means I'm not a Christian. Or maybe that means this desire isn't wrong. But I think what we see in Scripture is that Christ has come <clears throat> to take all of our desires that are filtered through our fallen humanity and to say, look, this doesn't align with God. This one doesn't align with God. This one doesn't align with God. And look, as Paul said, until you actually shed this body of death, it's always going to be pinging at you, tinging at you. I I'm probably never going to not like chocolate-covered Oreos. 
But what Christ says is, he says, but if you walk with me and let me grow up in you, what does he say? He says that he will give you the desires of your heart. Not that he will satisfy whatever the desires that already reside in your heart are, but he'll say, no, here's what you should be desiring. And so the walk of a Christian is not the absence of sinful desires, but it is the yielding to the Holy Spirit to allow the Holy Spirit then to enable you to resist those sinful desires. This is why Paul says that we were formerly slaves to unrighteousness. In other words, we could not resist our sinful desires. But when Christ came, he breaks the bonds of slavery, of sinful slavery. It doesn't mean that you can't choose to, but before, you had no choice. We just gave in. We did it because it felt good. Paul goes on to explain that there is no condemnation because we've been set free from the law of sin and death. And by the law of the spirit of life, which of course now begs the question, what is the law of sin and death? And what is the law of the spirit of life? First, the law of sin and death is rooted in Old Testament law keeping. It is the idea that people can gain God's righteousness, in other words, be in right relationship with God by means of their works and their effort. That man can somehow generate his own righteousness by his own actions, but operating according to the law, Paul says, only leads to death. Why does it only lead to death? Well, because the law can't be kept perfectly by anybody. Paul tells us that if you break one of them, you've broken them all. And also, though, the law is not capable, hear me now, it's incapable of actually breaking the power that sin has over our flesh. Think about that. Just because I don't commit murder doesn't mean there's not somebody that I want to. Do you see what I'm saying? Just because I don't steal doesn't mean that the... Right? Just because I'm not outwardly coveting (laughs) doesn't mean that there may not be something. And this is what Paul is getting at. Look, managing behaviors, Paul says, is not righteousness. Let's push it even further. We're all managing behaviors right now. (laughs) Some better than others, right? (laughs) We're all managing behaviors. But managing behaviors is not righteousness. That's just knowing how to act in certain company. Oh, we always talk about, people talk about, man, that dude is crazy. He just that and such and such. I always ask, are they crazy at work? Because if they're only crazy with you or only crazy in your home, then they might not be crazy. They, they smart. Because <laughs> they know where they can do that stuff. I don't know what came over me. I just couldn't control myself. Can you not control yourself at work? Managing behaviors versus righteousness. Amen. Say it. In contrast, 
That's the law of sin and death. On the other hand, the law of the spirit of life, it looks to the work of Christ on the cross as the means, the only means of establishing a right relationship with God and facilitating a righteousness from within, not a managing of behaviors, right? And this righteousness that comes from within is generated by the Holy Spirit. It changes hearts and not just manages our behavior. Jesus tells folks that, look, what goes into the body isn't what defiles the body. He said, but what comes out of it is what defiles the body, and what comes out of it comes from the heart is what he says. So what we need is we don't need help in managing our behavior. (laughs) What we need is a different heart. And that's the distinction between the law of, or the, the, the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit and life is that one says, I just need to control the outward to be right with God. The other says, no, I need someone to fix my inward to be right with God. Can I push this a little bit further? When I think that I just need to manage my behaviors to be right with God, then that puts me in the position of also determining which behaviors I should manage. Because when I let the Spirit change my heart, the Spirit says, all right then, let me come on in here. But when I'm managing my behaviors, then I get to say, well, this isn't so bad. This one is okay. I don't do this as much as I only own the, you see what I'm saying? But one, right, allows God full access and he changes my entire heart. (laughs) Let me uh, go back here. I'm sorry I've lost my place here. Yeah, so looking back. At verse 3, Paul says that what God has done, the law, what, what God has done, what the law, sorry, weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that the law, the Old Testament law, was intended to bring about righteousness. That was always its intent, right? But it couldn't do it, not because it wasn't the right set of laws, not because it didn't have a bead on what it was that God wanted and did not want, but it couldn't do it because we couldn't pull it off in the flesh. Nothing wrong with the instructions. We just couldn't follow the instructions. We, we couldn't keep the law because our flesh wars against the law. Being told not to do something just makes us want to do it even more. You ever seen, I'm, I'm looking at the Henry's little baby here. You ever seen, I know anybody who's ever raised children. You, the, 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 the clearest way to get a child to want something is to move it out of their reach. Remote controls was a big thing for us. Get these remote controls out the way. You set it somewhere, and what do they do? They take their little wobbly self on over. Now they're trying to get on you, move it on out the way. And, and there's something about us telling them, no, you can't have this, that makes them forsake all the other toys and lights and sounds and gadgets and everything else that we freely give to them, for them to put in their mouths, to do whatever they want to do. So no, I want that remote. <sighs> and what we see in just a simple example of a baby, watch it now, 
is what caused the fall in the garden. It says, God said, of all the trees here, you can eat freely of. You can have your way with all of this. But this one, just don't eat of this one. And which is the one Adam and Eve find themselves standing next to? <laughs> I don't know how big the garden was, but they found a way to be right there at the one where I guess they were trying to get as close as they could to it without touching it and looking at it. But we see, right, nobody likes to be told what they can and can't do. But God, get this, he sends his son in the flesh to do what none of us could do. That is, right, to keep the law perfectly in the flesh. And by doing so, he then, right, condemns sin in the flesh. He basically says, sin, you don't have power in the flesh anymore. I came in the flesh. I kept the law perfectly. So now your hold on the flesh is loosened. <laughs> he conquers sin. He loosens the grip that it, sin and death had had on flesh for all ages through the law. Verse 4 so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. <laughs> in my job, I do some uh, purchasing, procurement, negotiating for companies and organizations. Typically, they're uh, publicly sourced. So that means I've got to follow certain requirements on how many bids you get out and, and uh, how, how long it's posted and the notification. And there's all these checks you got to go through. Because if you do it wrong, there can be some serious issues if you're spending government money or you're doing a government bid and things like that. But there's also this clause or this, this, this practice that says, hey, look, entity, you don't have to go through all of this if you can find another contract where someone already did all of that stuff, and then you can just piggyback on that contract. So what the government agencies will do, and what some of our clients will do, is they'll say, hey, look, we want this service or this good. We don't want to have to go through all of the requirements to, to bid this out, but we could take the work that this other group did and just piggyback on that contract. Because this other group did all of the requirements, they did all the requirements correctly, and so now the deal that they have, we can just piggyback on. That's what God did in Christ. We could not keep the law perfectly. So Christ comes, he says, look, I know it's too hard for you to check all these boxes. You can't figure out which one comes before what. You said that it's not just about killing. It's about even having hate in my heart. That disabled me right there. So Jesus says, all right, I'll do it. I'll go through the checks. I'll check off everything. I'll keep the law perfectly. And when I ratify this contract, then you can piggyback on me. Because I got it. I did the heavy lifting. That's why Christ says, come on to me, all ye that are heavy laden and burdened. Take my yoke upon you. Well, what's your yoke, Jesus? All you got to do is piggyback on me. I did the heavy lifting. I'll give you a lighter burden. Huh. And this brings me to my second takeaway, and it's really two points. The first is that some of us are claiming salvation in Christ while still trying to earn salvation apart from Christ. 
Hear me. Don't be offended, but just hear me when I'm saying this. Believing, right, that we have to add our works on top of Christ's work on the cross. That somehow our doing is securing our salvation. And this leads to a bunch of stressed out and confused Christians who are always questioning whether or not they're saved. Because you're wearing yourself out trying to do righteousness instead of resting in the knowledge that the Spirit enables us to walk in Christ's righteousness. The second point is, on the other side, some of us think we're actually more saved than other people. Because of our works, we're looking at others and thinking, and, and thinking hey, you, you, you don't know as much scripture as I do. You, know, you don't come to the church building as much as I do. You, you're not involved in as many things as I am. You don't, you don't pray with your family like I pray. You don't fill in the blank, and, and you're looking at, oh, I like this one, looking at folks struggling with a sin that's just not your sin. You ever thought about this? Thank God, in some cases, that the sins that most of us struggle with are private sins, not the ones that, that can't be hidden. Do you know what I'm talking about? But for some of us, right, we're looking at others, we're looking down at them, and we conclude, based on our works, that we've got to be more righteous than them. We're ready to go, right? And these two things are just different sides of the same coin. They both, hear me now, lose sight of the fact that in and of ourselves, we have no righteousness. Isaiah 64 and 6 says that all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags. So what does that mean in these two examples? That means if you're out there trying to earn your salvation, you're trying to build up righteousness so that you can present it to God and say, here, God, add this to Christ's work on the cross. All you're doing is stacking up filthy rags. And then on the other side, if you're looking and measuring everybody's righteousness compared to yours and you believe that you're much better than them, then all you've got is a higher stack of filthy rags The gospel message is not that man has some untapped righteousness, but it's that man has to tap into Christ's righteousness. And that through the power of the Spirit, he then enables us to walk in his righteousness. We now get to a pivotal point, verse 5, where Paul makes a distinction between two groups of people. One group, he says... Uh, minds are set on the things of the flesh. And the other group, whose minds are set on the things of the spirit. Hmm. Nowadays, uh, there are a lot of things being said and a lot of information out there about mindsets. There is no shortage of resources available to help you cultivate the mindset for whatever it is that you want to achieve in your life. For example, I just, I just typed in mindset and just looked at it to see what came up. Positivity. Somebody to help you cultivate a positivity, positive mindset. Motivational. A growth mindset. Success mindset. Change mindset. There's even a hustle mindset. Leadership. Health. Happiness. Power. Wealth. 
And the list goes on and on and on. There's all sorts of things that if you say these things to yourself, if you read these things over and over, if you, all these things, right, that'll cultivate these different mindsets within you. And we've also seen, right, if you've been on, on social media, you've seen the posts with some image of some famous person with some words that they probably didn't say. Usually it's, you know, it's Morgan Freeman looking at you directly in your eye. <laughs> I guess they think, you know, he's, he played the voice of God. He played God in a movie. Everybody's going to believe what Morgan Freeman says. But some words that are there, then even some of us maybe have said, you know, forget these famous folk. I'm going to put a picture of me with some words there. And what am I saying? I'm saying that this is either what, this is the mindset that I ascribe to, or maybe even I'm saying this is the mindset that even you should ascribe to as well, because look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how I'm doing. Look at what I got. You can have the same thing if you would just. Simply stated, a mindset is an established set of attitudes that's held by an individual. And to set one's mind is to intentionally focus on and adopt an attitude, a belief, or a way of thinking. Think back to the example, nacho cheese. It's nacho cheese. I've adopted that. That's my way of thinking. That's my belief. And when we talk about mindsets or setting our mind, right, we typically think in terms of this, that our mindsets, just like the list I just went through, manifest uh, in our lives, that our, our mindsets are the way and the, and the means by which things are manifested in our lives. Right? This is evidenced by the list that we just talked about. We're trying to bring about some kind of different reality. We're trying to bring about some type of different outcome in our lives by setting our minds on something. But Paul seems to indicate that there is a different relationship between our lives and what our minds are set on. Hear me out. Specifically, he implies that how we live dictates what we set our minds on. Look at the text and, and here, here, follow along. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. It's interesting. Paul doesn't say, set your mind on the things of the Spirit so that you will live according to the Spirit. No, he seems to imply that how your life is lived accordingly flows into your mindset. The according to precedes the mind setting. Or to say it another way, the according to is dictates, it, it determines, it sets the parameters for the mind setting. I think that this is a very important point for us to stress because we often think that for me to do different, I just need to think differently. For me to behave differently, I just need to think differently. But I think what Paul is giving us is he's giving us some insight into that our ability to even think differently is being, or is going to be, rather, predisposed by whether we're living our lives according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. Hmm. 
Let me back up just a little bit so that we properly frame a little bit of what according to the flesh and according to the spirit is. Remember, Paul's flow of thought coming out of chapter 7 into chapter 8, this recognition that there are two laws at work within him, the law of God and the law of the flesh. And that this tension between this new life in the spirit and the old life in the body will ultimately be relieved by Christ. Because he has set us free from the law of sin and death of, and from the idea of self-sufficiency in establishing our own righteousness. And what is it that has set us free, Paul says? It's the law of the spirit of the life, which is total reliance upon Christ's righteousness. So with that as the backdrop to live my life according to the flesh isn't merely about being inflamed with all sorts of carnal desires and sinful passions, but at its core, that might be a fallout, that might be a consequence of it, but at its core, it is about believing that as it pertains to all aspects of my existence, in my flesh, I am self-sufficient. I don't need any outside input or influence. I can reason, I can hypothesize, I can exercise, I can manifest, I can justify, I can rationalize whatever outcome I desire up to and including a right relationship with God. Bottom line, to live my life according to the flesh is to put all of my confidence in my flesh and my ability. While on the other side, living my life according to the Spirit is having no confidence in the flesh to bring about anything as it pertains to godliness in my life. It is the conviction that in and of myself, I am incapable of governing any aspect of my existence in a manner that would be pleasing in God's sight. To push this even further, right? Paul is talking about those who have placed their faith in Christ. Those who have not, right, and those who have not done that, he is talking about believers and unbelievers. That is to say that those who have accepted Christ are the ones who are living their lives according to the Spirit. They're the ones who are living by the power of the Spirit. They're the ones who are able to set their minds on the things of the Spirit. But those who are living their lives according to the flesh, they can't help but set their minds on the things of the flesh. This brings me to my third takeaway, and that is that a mind that is set on the flesh intentionally focuses on and adopts an attitude and a belief or a way of thinking that places all confidence in the abilities of the flesh. And now my ability to negotiate, to reason, to rationalize, to vote, to motivate, to all, whatever, Right? While a mindset on the spirit intentionally focuses on and adopts an attitude and a belief or a way of thinking that places all confidence in the abilities of the Holy Spirit. And while ultimately Paul is dealing with an issue and a matter of salvation, even after being saved, we can have areas in our lives that are still according to the flesh. Areas we haven't fully submitted to God. Areas where we are placing more confidence in our flesh than we are in the Holy Spirit. Paul continues in verses 6 and 7, and he reveals that there are some significant consequences for both mindsets. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, he says, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And the fact that life and death here, right, are, are hanging in the balance is also what signals us that Paul isn't just talking about, um, you know, general advice on how you can live a more fulfilled life. He's just not trying to help us impress others and make friends, but he's actually talking about things of eternal weight and matter. This is about the eternal security of our souls. In addition to that, another way that we know that the distinction that Paul is making has eternal weight is because of the connection that he makes to death, which is a consequence of the mindset on the flesh. And this death comes as a result of hostility. Hostility just means resentment, anger towards God that refuses to submit to God's law or his commandments because it can't. Because the, mindset, the, because the mind that's set on the flesh, right, is an outflow, remember, of a life that places all of its confidence in the flesh. Think about it. If my confidence is in my flesh, then I, I don't put any weight or credibility in the words of God. Why would I? He, he can't inform me on how to live a productive life. He, he can't advise me in the decisions of my life. He can't admonish me in matters of right and wrong in my life. And get this, the times when it looks like I'm actually walking in obedience with him are really only times where his command aligns with what I already think and believe and want to do. So even in those moments, I'm still exercising faith in my flesh. This is precisely why the mind that is set on the spirit results in life and peace. Remember that the mind that is set on the spirit, right? Remember that we are piggybacking on what Christ has done. Christ is the one that has unity with the Father. So when we piggyback on him, guess what? There's no hostility between us and God now. God is the one who has fulfilled, or Christ is the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. So when we piggyback on him, guess what we have now done? We're riding his submission unto God's law executed perfectly. We have right relationship with God because Christ was raised to life. We too have everlasting life. There is nothing in that list that is generated or born from anything that I did. Charles, what did you do to get in right relationship with God? I can't even say, well, I believed in Christ because Christ is the one who has the right relationship with God. <laughs> Just because you know somebody famous and I know you doesn't mean I know that famous person. <laughs> right? Hmm. The conclusion, right? And I'm coming up here. Lastly, Paul says in verse 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Man, that is hard to hear, right? Because we like to think of God as the kindly old man in a rocking chair who just pats you on the top of your head no matter what you do, no matter what situation you find yourself in. That there's just nothing but acceptance there, right? But Paul says... If your mind is set on the flesh, you cannot please God. And at this point, I, I hope it would be clear to us why someone who has set 
their mind on the flesh. Someone who has placed all their hope and confidence in their flesh can't please God. But the one thing that this should do is beg also a question. (laughs) If the mind that's set on the flesh can't please God, then what is it that is pleasing to God? What is it that God is pleased by? What is it? <laughs> and and this is these kinds of points in sermons, right, where many, for, many of us, our ears perk up. <clears throat> our pens are ready. You know, I'm ready to, again, give me this list, Elder Wright. Give me all of them so I can start doing them right now. So I can go and be righteous. <laughs> so I can go do that thing that you're trying to tell me to do. But I'm not going to give a list, right? Here's here's what I think, and I think this is what becomes clear in the text. That what pleases God can be boiled down to one simple thing. One simple thing. And it's implied in the fact that those whose lives are according to the flesh, whose mind is set on the flesh, cannot please God. Then it bears, right? (laughs) It seems like it's staring us right in the face that then the only thing that pleases God is a life that is wholly and completely submitted to him in the spirit, right? And I know what we want is we want a list of things. Elder Wright, tell me what to go do. Tell me what to do to be pleasing in God's sight. And I think that that's what Paul is trying to get at is that, look, (laughs) that's the old law of trying to do enough to be pleasing in God's sight. What God is looking for, right? We're trying to offer up our sacrifices of good works so that God would say, okay, you've done enough good. Uh, You're bad. You know, you've got bad. No one's perfect, but you did enough good. Come on in to the kingdom. I've used this example before, but God tells uh, Samuel, man, I don't desire sacrifice. I desire your obedience, right? That's what I'm looking for. And I think, right, what pleases him is a life that's wholly and completely submitted to him in the spirit because then he can bring about in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives the righteousness that we're so eagerly trying to to stack up before him. And he's saying, look, the righteousness that you're going to stack up before me is based in your economy. It's based on what you think is right and wrong. It's based on what you think is the the best thing to do. Oh, you shouldn't do that. This is where you should be down here at this mission. You should be over here passing out food over here. You should be here. And God says, that ain't got nothing to do with me. But if you would just yield yourself to me, then I'll start working inside of you and I'll start moving you in the directions of the works that will please me. Not because you need to earn the righteousness, but because this new life is bubbling up inside of you. And so church, (laughs) when I ask you what your mind is set on, it's a little bit of a trick question. Because if... uh, my mind is going to be set on whatever my life is lived according to. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. 
If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.